This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. What if we put the smartest people in charge? So long as they had my politics, I'm sure we'd be better off. That's the allure of technocracy. Over three episodes, we're telling stories of technocracy's past, present, and future. Our series is called Technocracy Now. Last episode told the story of mid-century cybernetics. Cybernetics. The name comes from the Greek word for steersman. Cybernetics, though, may not be at all simple to understand. This was a theory of mathematical certainty in an uncertain world. With cybernetics, Cold War liberals thought that they could predict the future, and cyber-socialists thought that they could develop computer systems to plan their new economies. The thinking started by Wiener with his concern for feedback systems is likely to have a much greater impact on society than the word games of traditional philosophy. If you haven't already heard that episode, Go to dartsandletters.ca to find it. Okay, on to Technocracy Now, Part 3. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Maybe you've been listening and you've been thinking, you know, it's kind of strange that you're talking about technocracies right now. Okay, cool stories you've got here about progressive-era engineers, Cold War liberals, cyber-socialists. But really, technocracy is kind of on the way out. If you've thought that, honestly, you have a bit of a point. Because there's something that connects all these people that I've sort of left unsaid. They all tied themselves to a vision of a muscular state. A state that could remake society engineer global peace, plan a complex economy, and more. It was a state that could do anything, so long as it had the right kind of expertise with the right kind of politics. Suffice to say, that state does not exist anymore, certainly not in North America. For sure, our governments haven't completely withered away. They still exist. But the roles have changed a bit. The state increasingly outsources its functions to private entities. That's the basic story of neoliberal state capitalism, a story I'm sure you already know well. But that doesn't mean technocracy is gone. It just means technocracy has moved. Because corporations have their own technocrats. And that's what this episode is all about. This is the final installment in our three-part series, Technocracy Now. And it's about the technocrats of Silicon Valley. Some of them want to start their own techno-utopian governments, like the Seasteaders. They're led by Patrick Friedman. Yes, that Friedman. Milton Friedman's grandson. So let's put on our entrepreneur hats and let's think about the global government industry. Let's think about governance as a service. It's provided by retailers, countries, 
to customers, citizens. Friedman's vision is essentially a libertarian vision of exit. This was common in Silicon Valley. But Sam Adler-Bell tells us that things are changing. Instead of a sort of libertarianism of exit, it's a kind of entryist libertarianism. It's kind of, we'll populate the administrative state with our own people, and they will run these agencies the way that we think they should be run, which is to say, much less democratically. But first, let's not talk about far-off dreams. I want to talk about actual existing technocracies. Where is the dream of technocracy closest to reality? The workplace. Workplaces are increasingly run like totalizing technocracies, nowhere more so than the Amazon warehouse. All that and more on Darts and Letters. Stay tuned. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. That's Canada's largest network of left-wing podcasts. And they are broadcasting from the world to come. It's a more environmentally, socially, and economically just world. You can help bring that world into being by supporting independent media. Go to harbingermedianetwork.com to find out more about what they do. I talk about a lot of theories on this show. Some of them are a little obscure, but they all influence our lives one way or another. But I think this theory might just be the most influential. Taylorism. It is sometimes argued that Taylorism has made the most lasting contribution to American thought since the Federalist Papers. Taylorism, you might ask. Chances are you live and work by it. Frederick Winslow Taylor published his Principles of Scientific Management in 1911. These ideas radically remade the industrial system. It started simply enough, get a stopwatch, measure the way workers move, and then you can plan the optimal organization of the factory. Taylor was trying to make work into a science. He broke down tasks into minute detail, and he carefully managed the labor process. The factory became a place of ruthless efficiency. Charlie Chaplin lampooned these ideas in modern times. Section 5, give it a limit. In this famous scene, you see Charlie Chaplin screwing bolts on an assembly line, but he just can't keep up with the pace of the line. So it pulls him into the gears. Truth is, we're all subject to Taylorism, to varying degrees even if we're not on the factory floor. Like right now, I'm using this little office app to track how long it takes me to write this introduction. I've been writing for about two hours and nine minutes. The next segment has a really complicated setup, but I also know roughly how long that's going to take me. By breaking things down, I can manage the show. How many interviews can I do in a week? How many hours will it take me to prepare? How many episodes can I make if I do that many interviews? I know answers to all these questions because of Taylorism. You probably do similar things at work. Maybe you're an academic who counts how many words they write and what your most efficient hours are. Or maybe you use a food app to track your macros, a sleep app to track your sleep, a workout app to track your calories burned per hour, whatever. Under capitalism, we all feel the pressure to quantify and to optimize. Otherwise, we might just fall behind. There's a little bit of Taylor in all of us. But there's a lot of Taylor at Amazon. But this digital Taylorism is much, much more extreme. 
This is not a world of managers holding stopwatches or podcasters using office tracking apps. This is a world of total surveillance and total control, where managers don't even understand the systems. It's all algorithms all the way down. Alessandro Delfanti has been working hard to try to understand the system. He started with an Amazon warehouse near where he grew up in Italy. It's a huge, 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 massive warehouse in the outskirts of Castel San Giovanni, which is a little town in the province of Piacenza, my hometown. Alessandro is an associate professor at the University of Toronto in Mississauga. But it's this warehouse that led Alessandro to writing his latest book. It's called The Warehouse. Workers and robots at Amazon. You kind of see it from the highway, and it's this like long, big box building surrounded by highways, lots of trucks going in and going out. Inside, it is this like massive cave with like no natural light and thousands of shelves. The workers here refer to it as the spaceship. Because of this artificial, sterile feeling of being in this high-tech place, which has no connection whatsoever with the external environment. The workers are split up into groups. Receivers get the items, and then the stowers stow them in what they call the pick tower. It's rows and rows and rows and rows of shelves. And they look a little disorganized because stowers drop items all around the warehouse. This is called chaotic storage. But it isn't bad organization, it is just the opposite. Like everything with Amazon, it is all about efficiency. There's never an area of the warehouse that's gonna be empty because we're running out of coffee mugs. So actually you can squeeze a coffee mug anywhere as long as it fits in one of the cells. It's more efficient also when it comes to retrieving an item because you will have copies of the same object spread out all over the warehouse. Say you order a coffee mug on Amazon. The picker has to get it, but they don't actually know where the coffee mug is. It's the computer that tells them where to go. A message will show up on their barcode scanner saying go to third floor, A6, cell 95, and retrieve this. So they're guided through the warehouse by the software systems that communicate with them through the barcode scanner. And actually what Amazon has done um, sort of beautifully here is to attune its technological and political systems so that it can exploit this, you know, pretty sophisticated skills that are widely available in some populations. So it can find masses of workers who do possess pretty sophisticated digital skills and they can work with digital technology. The warehouse is a machine operated by a computer with humans as its moving parts. So because the, the labor is organized algorithmically, it's also very easy to control it uh, in terms of quantifying people's productivity. And this is one of the main features of working in a, in a place like, like an Amazon warehouse. Everything you do is surveilled very closely and quantified. Um, so management has access to all kinds of data in terms of how productive you are. Um, so including pieces per hour, but also so-called TOT, time off task, which means the time spent logged out of the system, for instance, when you go to the bathroom or take lunch break. But like all machines, sometimes its parts break down. And this is part of Amazon's business. There is something about this company's ability to put to work people very quickly. They need these army of workers uh, wherever they go. These workplaces are labor-intensive. 
So we're talking about thousands of workers in these facilities. So there are studies from the US that say that some warehouses have a 200% turnover rate, which means that each job is staffed by three people per year on average. But Amazon is very good at managing turnover and even, even fosters it. So not, not only because lots of these jobs are precarious. So if you're hired through a temp agency, Amazon doesn't need to do much to, to, to get rid of you, just you know, not, not, not renew your contract. Uh, but also it, it, it does, the, the company does have in place uh, techniques to push workers to leave. So for instance, they will pay you to quit after a certain number of years. Uh, or they will pay for your education in part, not to improve the skills you can use at Amazon, but rather for you know to, to get a job elsewhere. So at a certain point, people will slow down, people will have been injured, so they won't be able to abide by these extreme freedoms of work uh, dictated by the machines that run the place. So Amazon needs to replace its workforce periodically. As efficient as this seems, Amazon thinks that it can do even better. That's why they're one of the biggest spenders in research and development. And they've got a bunch of patents to make this system more efficient. Now, a patent doesn't mean the technology is actually going to become real one day. But it is a good sign of how Amazon is thinking. And Alessandro has read many of the patents. I mean, this is very predictable, but that was interesting to me. It's the very explicit way in which Amazon acknowledges the continuing need for human labor in, in the warehouse. So I found sentences that could have been taken from like straight from a labor sociology uh, textbook, like something like, oh, automation is cool, but human labor is cheaper and more flexible. One of the interesting patents is for these augmented reality goggles. Workers would put these goggles on and it would tell them exactly where to turn. They also have another one for this wristband that beeps if you do the wrong thing. All this stuff is basically turning humans into robots, because actually building the robots to do all this work would be too expensive. Many of these patents are more, are more about controlling the workforce or speeding up labor, human labor. Some have to do with workers helping technology make sense of the warehouse. So many have to do with workers carrying sensors that the software systems can use to analyze the environment around, around the worker, to capture information from the warehouse. Um, many have to do with uh, speeding up labor, like the, the augmented reality goggles you mentioned. That's, that's not even the most futuristic one. Those, that, that technology is already in use in some very specialized uh, jobs uh, where you will wear like you know augmented reality goggles that will basically overlay visual information on top of your natural field of vision, like, a, you know, like an arrow that points at something. Many have to do with surveillance, so with making making workers even more transparent to management. Is there one that stood out for you as as especially worrying or surprising? I mean, what was the one that really that kind of knocked you off your seat? One that was very interesting to me was this sort of Taylorism applied to robots in a sense. So this is a, a patent that imagines a system where a robotic hand can actually perform the job of a picker. So retrieve an item, pick it, and send it to shipping. But if the robotic hand is unable to pick a certain item, then a worker steps in and they wear gloves, special gloves with sensors in them. They perform the task. And by performing the task, uh, the human worker performing the task, 
they will teach the machine how to do it. So the proper movements, the proper pressure, and so on and so forth. And after that's happened, the robot will know how to do it. And all similar robots in the entire uh, network of warehouses that, that Amazon owns uh, will be able to perform that task. So this is something, uh, it's something about humans uh, doing the work of optimizing robotic labor rather than uh, optimizing human labor. This all feels like the next logical step in the Taylorist management system. The humans are being demoted. The difference is that there is no supervisor working around with a, with a stopwatch, and, a, and a, uh, but rather software systems that do this job of analyzing very strictly the processes, very closely the processes, and then trying to come up with, with, with solutions in terms, of, in terms of optimizing them. So I think it's, it's a component of labor in many companies of today's digital capitalism. So Amazon is not unique. It doesn't tell the whole story. Either I think there's also something about you know different in terms of you know there's there are differences between between traditional or modern tailorism and and what happens in these companies. So for instance, the the idea of uh, flexibility that's linked to consumption patterns. So these companies not only need, need to optimize their processes, but they need to optimize their ability to be flexible to respond to to consumption consumption patterns. So for instance, you know double their workforce in a day. Or, or cut the workforce in half if they know that tomorrow uh, it's going to be a slow day. This is a really complex technical system of workplace management. It seems to be pretty efficient. And so the, the question becomes, at least for me, is this the kind of thing that one could imagine socializing and employing these sort of efficiencies in a socially democratic way? Um, to serve different ends, or alternatively, is that is not not really the problem? Is the problem here that there's a ruthless technocratic rationalization that is fundamentally dehumanizing and antithetical to any sort of emancipatory political project? So, in other words, what I'm saying is, could you just kind of replace Jeff Bezos, run this? socially democratically, but employ some of the same similar kinds of technologies to other ends? Or is what they're creating here just so monstrous that the technologies themselves need to be thrown out and replaced with technologies with different logics? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I'm not sure I have a final answer. I know there has, there, there's been like, you know, theoretical proposals about, about this, like repurposing companies like Amazon or Walmart to, for, you know, for the common good if they were like managed by workers or something like that. I want to say at the very least that the technological layer that Amazon is developing is geared towards this fantasy or dream of uh, one-click consumption. So faster and faster and, and ever more, more unreasonable delivery times, for instance, about you know, of any, any possible commodity. So to what extent this is sustainable um, or to what extent we, we should aim for that in our society? That's a different question than just looking at the way in which Amazon runs things efficiently. Certainly, it's very efficient, but is it desirable? That's a different question. That was Alessandro Delfonti, associate professor at the University of Toronto in Mississauga. He's author of the book, The Warehouse Workers and Robots at Amazon. That's out now from Pluto Press.
There's this idea that every undergrad eventually learns in political science. It's very basic. It's called social contract theory. Social contract theory is trying to answer a question. The question is, what makes governmental authority legitimate? If their authority doesn't come from some God-given right, where does it come from? Why would you even obey their laws? Enlightenment philosophers like Hobbes and Locke thought of this as a contract. You obey their laws because you made a contract with society, and you continue to consent to that contract explicitly or implicitly. You consent because you benefit from society, and you consent because you don't go anywhere. Now, in theory, you could actually go somewhere. You know, like the frontier, America. There was always some uncultivated, unpopulated land that you could head off to. Of course, that wasn't exactly true, but it was a convenient fiction. Now, even if it were true, David Hume had this devastating critique. He said that nobody actually agreed to be in the country that they were born in, and they didn't have much of a choice to go anywhere else. It's like that they just woke up one day on a ship. And the social contract theorists were basically saying, yeah, you've got a choice. You could jump off the ship and head into sea. Of course, Hume meant this rhetorically, but today it seems like it's becoming a reality. Okay, I am currently in international waters, the location of my future home. You're hearing a clip from a documentary called The First Seasteaders. International waters where there are no... No laws other than the law of the sea. Chad Elwartowski wants to break his social contract and find a new frontier. Chad's a seasteader. Seasteaders are like homesteaders, except they're on the open waters. The whole seasteading concept will be um, better governance. Um, your business will grow because you're actually in a system where there's smart, smart systems as opposed to all the gridlock and... Uh, Horrible systems that current governments have. They have a monopoly on land, but they don't have a monopoly on sea. The basic argument of seasteading is this. We're done arguing. We don't want to do the slow, arduous work of politics. We don't want to campaign, convert, and change society. It's much better to just do what we want to do and see if it sticks. This is coming out of a Silicon Valley startup culture. These are technologists who say that government needs a technological update. We're still using government technology rooted in 2,000 years ago, representative democracy. This is Patrick Friedman, Milton Friedman's grandson. The United States is still using a constitution written over 200 years ago. If you drove a car from 200 years ago, it would be a horse. Patrick co-founded the Seasteading Institute in 2008. This is him explaining their ideas in a TED Talk-style thing back in 2011. So let's put on our entrepreneur hats and let's think about the global government industry. Let's think about governance as a service. It's provided by retailers, countries, to customers, citizens. Friedman's founding funder is Peter Thiel. That's the billionaire technologist who co-founded PayPal and Palantir. Thiel and Friedman both think that democracy just isn't innovative enough. From my Silicon Valley perspective, it's a business opportunity. I mean, what I've just described is an industry that's ripe for disruption by new competitors. Maybe a startup country could be the first trillion dollar business. Their argument is that we need new experiments in governance, and through trial and error, we can come up with some better ideas. 
Chad L. Wartowski got involved in 2017. He helped found Ocean Builders. They are a, quote, ocean innovation technology company. In 2019, Chad and his girlfriend did something no one else in the seasteading world had managed to do. They actually built and moved into a floating cabin off the coast of Thailand. But their techno-utopian seasteading dream was short-lived. Family and friends of Chad Elwertowski fear his life is on the line. He and his girlfriend are now on the run after Thai police officials accused them of essentially trying to lay claim to Thai territory with their floating house. I guess Thailand never really agreed that this was, in fact, the frontier. So Chad and Ocean Builders tried MS Satoshi. This was a self-titled crypto cruise. That failed, too. Now they're working on sea pods. That's a set of luxury dwellings off the coast of Panama. You can reserve one now for 395,000 US dollars. William Otley works with the Seasteading Institute. He said he was drawn to the movement because he wants to turn his philosophical beliefs into practical action. I mean, I came from the left and I came from the Democrat party and then I started to see a lot of the, the flaws in that and over time, I found classical liberalism, which is, you know, manifested to a large extent in the Libertarian Party. I don't consider myself Libertarian anymore because it's a political movement that seeks to take the United States government back to its originally authorized size and scope. That's how I would define it. I can't be part of that because I know, to me, it's an impossibility. You need an entire book at least to sort of catalog what happened in the United States and how the, I'm sorry to say, but the degeneration of the government, you know, to, and it's, it's become to the point where I, to me, that government is little more than an organized crime syndicate. William says that he's experimenting with something called Ethos Island. He wants it to be an ocean-based city-state. William says that it won't be like what happened in Thailand. Uh, part of the method that we've developed is we're not going to any government about anything. We want to have a seastead in international waters. Ethos Island would have a private government. Private contractors would run each, all the different aspects of a government, whether it's a police force, even the judiciary. I, I would say especially the judiciary. The people who are going to be going on to the seastead are going to decide exactly what kind of governance that they want. There's some legal issues with finding this next frontier. According to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, international waters belong to everyone and no one. You can't just claim them. So it's not clear to me why any nation would recognize a startup city-state in the sea. Still, Ethos Island is hopeful. So as soon as you get out there and you've got five or ten seasteads, if there's a multiplicity of new countries, of new nations, all of those countries will have their own forms of governance. And then an evolution of governance, which is so obviously needed right now in the world, I think almost everybody would agree with that. I don't care what your political philosophy is. That will, it will allow for an evolution of governance and political philosophy to take place. I think that was really, really 
the sea that everybody in Silicon Valley was swimming in, if they were involved in politics at that time, was like, we can build these alternatives. The stultifying machinery of American democracy is hostile to our expertise and our ability to build the future. This is Sam Adler-Bell. He's co-host of the excellent podcast, Know Your Enemy. That's a left-wing podcast doing deep dives on the right. Sam calls this particular kind of Silicon Valley right-wing politics the politics of exit. You know, let's go out to sea. Let's go to space. Let's exit from politics altogether. This sort of democratic process is not going to be the means by which we achieve this ideal, rationalized capitalist society. Even talking about them now, they sound really utopian and a little bit silly. You know, how soon can you get to Mars? Not very soon. <laughs> Anarcho-capitalist barges out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean also is just, it's a silly proposition. It was a, a fascinating period. I mean, like famously, there was a speech at Y Combinator by uh, this um, Silicon Valley CEO type, Balai, uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing this, Balai Srinivasan. It's Balaji Srinivasan. Balaji, perfect. Thank you. For, thank you. What talk about today is uh, something I'm calling um, Silicon Valley's ultimate exit. And this is actually related to a fundamental concept in political science, the concept of voice versus exit. If a company or a country is in decline, you can try voice uh, or you can try exit. Voice is basically changing the system from within, um, whereas exit is leaving to create a new system, a new startup, or to join a company. You're hearing Balaji Srinivasan's Y Combinator talk from 2013. In the talk, he especially praises two forms of exit, seasteading and Martian colonies. So what do I mean by this? What do I mean by Silicon Valley's ultimate exit? It basically means build an opt-in society ultimately outside the U.S., run by technology. And this is actually where the valley is going. This is where we're going over the next 10 years. That's where mobile is going. I think something that I've been tracking very closely and that my piece in the Times that you refer to was attended to is this turn away from exclusively trying to solve these problems via an exit from politics or the sort of creation of alternative libertarian utopias into, especially with Teal, trying to change the governments, change the state, make the state as it exists already more conducive to their vision of the good, their vision of politics. Sam wrote about this change in a New York Times essay called The Violent Fantasies of Blake Masters. I think that's a disjuncture that's important when we think about the history of political thinking in Silicon Valley, because for a long, long time, to the extent there was a politics of Silicon Valley, it was a politics of libertarian freedom, a kind of escape from the stultifying, slow boring of boards of liberal democracy and building alternatives. But in turning away from this pure libertarianism, they're becoming a little more technocratic. Typically, we think of liberal technocracy is the phrase we hear a lot. We think of sort of an administrative state full of like Ivy League graduates who are planning the economy and planning how the government should carry out its ends. And then there's also an association with technocracy, which I'm sometimes sympathetic to a critique of it, which is that it's a sort of usurpation of democratic control by the people by an elite class of experts. And now we increasingly see an embrace of a certain kind of technocratic expertise on the right with the new right and especially its Silicon Valley acolytes and thinkers 
who believe that the solution to the problem of kind of stagnation and decadence in American life and American politics doesn't require a redistribution of democratic control downward to the people. It requires a new class of experts who share their kind of moral vision of the good. And then I think increasingly this type of conservative basically thinks, well, we've been trying for a long time to kind of destroy the administrative state, sort of repeal the 20th century, repeal <laughs> the rise of the New Deal order. And that hasn't worked. And instead, perhaps what we need to do is just as from their perspective, the left does legislate using whatever powers available in the state and in the bureaucracy, our own version, our own vision of the moral good. And so that's, I think, part of the change that you see. I think a very clear kind of synecdoche for this transformation is when Peter Thiel, having won over Trump during the election with his strategic investments and his, you know, sort of loan support among Silicon Valley billionaires for his campaign, having won him over, Trump put Thiel and Masters in charge of coming up with a list of candidates to populate the administrative state, to be put into these technocratic jobs. And one of them was Balaji Srinivasan. I didn't know that. Who Thiel and Masters wanted to make the head of the FDA. <laughs> this was, according to Steve Bannon, too radical of a choice. Bannon thought these were too extreme. And one of the reasons for that, you can see it very clearly with Srinivasan, is that he had said about the FDA that a Yelp for drugs would be better <laughs> than a Food and Drug Administration. But the reason I think of that as sort of illustrating this transformation is that instead of just building these alternative outside of the government, we're going to bring in these wreckers into the administrative state, put them in charge of these agencies that they think are so poorly run. And they will either, you know, sort of destroy them from the inside and replace them with their kind of ideal or just run them so much better because they know how to run, you know, a startup. They know how to run a company in Silicon Valley. And they, and that's the way that, that that's a rational way to organize kind of organize people towards the achievement of a common goal. Mm. And so instead of a sort of libertarianism of exit, it's a kind of entryist libertarianism. It's kind of we'll populate the, the, the administrative state with our own people and they will run these agencies the way that we think they should be run, which is to say much less democratically. I mean, that's one of the key things here. You know, one of the core principles of Thiel's thinking, master's thinking, is that, you know, startups are run as dictatorships, not as democracies, because democracies are inefficient way of making decisions together and effectuating some kind of goal. And so by bringing in, you know, basically a bunch of Silicon Valley dictators into the government, they've sort of taken the project of exit and brought it inside. You know, if you don't look too closely, you might not see the differences. You might think of Teal just as like the Koch brothers or any kind of like right-wing small government ghoul, but there's interesting differences here that you have to be careful about. And I'm just, as a sort of background question, like why does it matter sort of how different they are. Yeah. I mean, from the standpoint of if your kind of political posture is that it's a problem that these massively wealthy people have such an overwhelming influence over the direction of our politics, then you can detest them for the same reason. Mm -hmm. You could just say <laughs> Peter Thiel shouldn't decide how America is run and neither should the Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson or whoever else. I think for the purposes of understanding what kind of 
government, what kind of American state, what kind of global order these different rich guys want, it is important to look closely at what their the sort of fine-grained differences in their ideologies are. Mm-hmm. I guess I kind of already alluded to this, but a major difference between the Kochs and someone like Teal is that the Kochs are still invested principally in libertarianism. With Teal, I think that he has grown to be much less sanguine about the likelihood of unfettered markets producing the sort of society that he wants to live in. Right. And that's been the change in his thinking over the past 10 years. One of the things that's interesting about Teal is how difficult he is to understand. And I'm just curious, like as a writer and, and, and doing what you're doing, what was the experience of like just to try to piece it together and, and, and get a sense of these fine-grained ideological differences that we're talking about? How, how challenging was that? I, I would say it is quite challenging in particular because somewhat unlike Musk, he doesn't talk to the media all the time. He doesn't tweet. He doesn't have the same kind of public-facing profile. Thiel has always cultivated a kind of enigmatic persona. I think he does that partially out of a sort of central business premise for him, which is that if you know a secret, you know, you know something that's valuable, you know, as a market proposition, as a sort of startup proposition for a new business, you should keep it to yourself. (laughs) Is a certain element of it placing many bets, I suppose? Because he, t- he talks about political candidates even as like, uh, as like investment vehicles and startups. Yeah, so I think that's also really key. I think a lot of the best writing about Teal House pointed this out, that his political investments look similar to the way he makes investments in startups. He would prefer to make a sort of strategic, smaller investment at a very important time for a company or a candidate, which doesn't cost him that much, which isn't a big risk but which has the possibility of turning out really big. You know, that's what he did with Facebook. I think with Trump, people forget his big investment with Trump. He was already supporting Trump, but he made a big investment in Trump after the Access Hollywood tape came out. When the rest of the Republican sort of financial world, um, funding world, was running for the hills. And Teal thought, I still think this guy could win. I think it would be good for me if he did. I can make a big investment now of a couple million dollars and he'll never forget it, you know, because at that moment he needed it. He need someone, needed someone to believe in him still. And he did. And that was a sort of classic Teal investment, strategic, timed well, wasn't a huge expense to him. And so what, if Trump loses, it doesn't matter. You know, he didn't spend that much money mm. for him as a billionaire. And I think you see that with his candidates too. I think it's something that's actually frustrating <laughs> the RNC and the Republican leadership right now, which is that he, he basically put tens of million, over $10 million into PACs for J.D. Vance and Blake Masters. Seems we can probably conclude that he convinced Trump to endorse these people. And then Trump did. And these people won their primaries basically as a result of Trump having endorsed them. And now the RNC and Mitch McConnell and the Senate, you know, whatever the Senate campaign committee is called, are looking around and going, wait a second, are you going to fund these weirdos or do we have to? Because you are the one who made sure that they won the primary and they're getting into these fights. One of the things that strikes me in looking at, you know, seasteading and these other techno-utopian dreams and comparing them to sort of the more back to the land or um, survivalist, they do have a kind of technocratic intellectual ambition 
right? They talk about yeah. experiments and governance, about multiplying the number and type and variety of states. So clearly they were trying to learn some lessons and, you know, create some quote-unquote innovations, probably with an eye towards bringing them back even then. I'm not really sure. Yeah. But one of the curiosities about this is you said, <laughs> and it's you know obvious to, to the lay listener that these experiments are goofy and failed, certainly didn't you know, reach a critical mass. So if they weren't working at the experimental phase, like what leads them to believe that, okay, these are ready for prime time? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I think partially what we're getting to here is that, and maybe what is attractive about the state to people like Teal in a way that maybe wasn't clear to him before was that the state can just make make you do it. <laughs> you know, yeah. the state doesn't have to wait for the market to decide that your product, your version, way of doing this thing or the other thing is better than the incumbent existing thing. The state can command, you know, the state decides. The, the state, you know, there's bidding on contracts for projects or whatever, but the state ultimately decides we're going to do it this way or we're going to do it this way. The administrative state especially has a lot of leeway mm -hmm. to decide. And so I think that partially it's like philosophically we think these things are superior ways of organizing society. And we just don't believe that the market is going necessarily to arrive at that wisdom without a little muscle, which is what the state can do. And I think there's a little bit of this, there's, I mean, not a little bit, there's an extraordinary amount of hubris involved in all of this, as there is with all technocratic projects, as I'm sure you've been discussing on this series. Basically, they know better, they know best, and they're going to use the power of the state to make sure that it's done that way mm -hmm. and not wait for the consumers to figure it out. So there's two figures that figure prominently um, in this milieu that that you've you've mentioned. Um, the one being Blake Masters, and and the other being Curtis Yarvin. So I'm curious about their relationship to to Teal, and and you profile some of this um, in your piece. Maybe we can start with Blake Masters. I mean, he's kind of like a a libertarian shit poster, right? He's he's a weird forum creature. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, the way I've described it to people is like, imagine the guy on your like freshman dorm hall, if you went to college, who was just so annoying <laughs> and wanted to argue with everybody about capitalism and freedom and, you know, Hayek and the Austrian economists, like, you know, anytime somebody brought up some, you know, plausibly liberal, progressive, redistributive idea, you know, he'd wheel, you know, wheel out. Milton Friedman to just destroy your argument, just be looking everywhere for somebody to get into an argument about. And he, and, and then imagine that guy going on a trajectory where he goes after college and works for Peter Thiel for like 10 years, you know, basically doing nothing but working for Peter Thiel, and then runs for Senate. This is a short-barreled rifle. It wasn't designed for hunting. This is designed to kill people. But if you're not a bad guy, I support your right to own one. The Second Amendment is not about duck hunting. Andrew He's hunting. almost like he hatched out of Teal's brain. I'm Blake Masters. I'm running for the US Senate in Arizona. And I approve this message because without gun rights before long, you have no rights. He took a class with Teal at Stanford when he was in law school on startups uh, and business. And he was so enraptured 
uh, by this, and it changed the way he thought about everything. Uh, he started keeping a blog where he wrote down his notes from the class into these es- into these long sort of essays, which became themselves a phenomenon on the internet. So his forum posting really led to Teal becoming very flattered uh, and impressed by Master's sort of interpolation of his ideas. What about uh, Curtis Yarvin? I mean, he has another interesting trajectory. Like I, I was just watching before we chatted, uh, you know, videos of him doing like slam poetry in Berkeley and, you know, reading his pieces that he wrote for Wired. And, and, and now he's kind of this he's advocating for like a tech monarchy essentially. And he's the sort of key intellectual figure of, of this neo-reactionary right. I mean, tell me a little bit more about how he intersects this orbit. Yeah. So Yarvin was, you know, a kind of a coder of the first generation of uh, the dot-com boom in the nineties. I think he made a good amount of money on a company that, um, I don't really know what happened to, but he, you know, like a lot of people in the dot-com uh, boom, made some money. Um, and then he used that money to, uh, and, and during that time, he also started working on what is his like life's work, uh, in terms of his technical work, uh, which is this platform called Urbit. Do not ask me to explain what Urbit is. They talk about it in these extremely utopian terms, sort of completely alternate, alternate internet that would solve all the problems of the way the internet has been made. Um, uh, I couldn't explain it to you in technical terms what exactly it means. I could describe ideologically what I think is going on there. But but so he started working on that. And at the same time, he used this money that he got to basically undertake a intense self-education, um, a very idiosyncratic self-education in political philosophy and history, European history in particular, um, using the internet and like using Google Books. Curtis Yarvin's key idea is the cathedral. This is a supposed network of intellectual and administrative elites that control society. Sort of the brain, you know, basically, if you're looking at, you know, the oligarchy is a sort of the bottle, the cathedral, meaning prestigious media and education is its brain and the administrative state or deep state is its body. You're hearing clips from an interview that Yarvin gave to Freddie Sayer. It's on the YouTube channel Unheard. Basically, you're looking at something that calls itself a democracy and is actually an oligarchy. And so... Now, um, you might think, okay, this is an anti-elite guy. He's a critic of sham democracy. Maybe he's some kind of populist. Nope. He doesn't think democracy is possible either. So it's best to just run a country like a startup. Install an absolute techno-monarch. Another word for monarch in the 20th century context is obviously a despot or a dictator. Or, yes, or a CEO. Let's skip forward to basically the case for monarchy. So um, so we're basically looking at, you know, to recap, we think we're in a, a democracy. We're actually in an oligarchy. Democracy itself has significant problems. And so sort of the only thing that you're left with in a way, if you don't like the way this oligarchy is trending, is the the third system of government monarchy. Who are the monarchs we should be looking at as the kinds of examples we should be emulating? I think you can, Elizabethan England was an absolutely wonderful place. I think you can learn a lot from Napoleon. Uh, his military strategy was perhaps a little aggressive, but um, Napoleon is perhaps the monarch who's most reminiscent of like a, a 
21st century Silicon Valley uh, CEO in some ways. Napoleon is really a startup guy. It seems counterintuitive that a monarchist could also be a libertarian. But actually, there's a long sort of tradition of this idea that uh, if you have a sort of monarchistic state and no democracy, then maybe you, you don't have to really deal with the government as much, you know, as if you're in a democracy where there's a bureaucracy and everything you do has to be kind of going through this uh, process and blah, blah, blah. And libertarian monarchists, which should be, a, should be a contradiction in terms, sort of think like, well, just let the CEO of America make all the decisions and the rest of us will just go on living, you know, and we won't have to bother with all this bullshit politics. Um, that's, that's, that's Curtis Yarvin's perspective. He, encou- he, he ends up um, intersecting with these other people like Teal, uh, Teal invests in Urbit, um, but also Teal's always just kind of interested in who the like dangerous thinkers on the right are, and um, and Yarvin has develops this following you mentioned it, that is they call themselves neo reactionaries. Uh, it's based around his blog um, where he went under the pseudonym Mencius Moldbug, um, and is sort of eva- is sort of elaborating this whole theory of of, of monarchy and dicta- dictatorship as the ideal. Um, form of government and 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 teal's just attracted that stuff too they become friends um i mean it was reported uh sometime after the 2016 election that yarvin and teal watched the election returns together um there was a long period of time where associations with yarvin were considered um totally um you know toxic because he had written you know terribly racist pro-colonial uh and obviously like anti-democratic things on his blog. And so even people who worked at like right-wing magazines would disavow Yarvin. Um, But in the past few years, that's changed. People like Masters claim him as a friend. J.D. Vance has claimed him as a friend. Um, And he's, he's kind of, he starts, he started going by his actual name. Urbit has some kind of transgressive cultural cachet amongst this kind of milieu of politically engaged right-wing Silicon Valley people. Um, and, and Yarvin is kind of, you know, he's a kind of court philosopher of the uh, Silicon Valley reactionaries. I want to end on the question of technocracy again and, and the question of how to respond to these dynamics. I mean, you conclude this New York Times piece by essentially contending that these new right Silicon Valley people want to usurp the liberal technocratic elite and install a different kind of elite that's maybe even less democratic than the undemocratic liberal elite. And I think we've sort of covered why there's technocratic strains of, of in, in this new right. I want to ask you a little bit more about the left. And, and this, this kind of leads me, or the center, I guess. And this leads me to another piece that you wrote about disinformation and you know, seeing that as a kind of technocratic solution to political um, challenges from the right. How do you think sort of technocratic liberals are or will respond to these kind of neo-reactionaries? And, and how would you do it differently? If this sort of technocratic challenge from the right was coming from less noxious political figures, figures who are not associated with Trumpism or like active racism or kind of religious warriors. I think there would be elites in the liberal technocracy who would welcome it. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, I think that a lot of people in liberal 
governments, liberal democratic governments across the world, they see simultaneously that the like institutional legitimacy of the existing technocratic elite is being undermined, but they also still see a profound need for technocratic know-how. And frankly, I mean, I think we, we all probably do. Mm-hmm. I mean, the world is very complicated. Our economies are very complicated. The way that the internet works is very complicated. Disinformation is a symptom of this. It's just that like, it's really impossible to control people lying. And so the need for technocracy in the minds of liberal and conservative elites, I think, is, is not diminishing. I think neither side really knows how to invest their technocratic leadership with popular will. <laughs> and I think, uh, I think maybe the fear for people on the left is that the right is doing that a little bit better right now than people on the left are in the sense that, you know, these, these sort of Silicon Valley technocratic Prometheans are attaching their project to something that is understood to be populist. Techno-populism, right? The, the recent book that kind of is arguing that these two things are coming together. Certainly in, in the case of some of these new right figures, they seem, they seem to be. There's a kind of populist cultural politics almost. Yes. There used to be on the left, you know, basically kind of the socialist movement was a way of harmonizing these impulses because on the one hand you needed the labor movement to you know combat capital and you know and redistribute democratic authority in the in the society downward to workers but but socialism for the elites was also this rational project this project of creating a sort of much more uh, rational and not merely sort of crazy profit-driven way of organizing society and redistributing goods. Um, but there is no, I mean, there, that, that sort of socialist or even social democratic um, dream is, 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 is pretty tarnished in most of the world. And also the sort of um, actual democratic coalitions that made that possible are completely gone. You know, the labor movement is... Um, you know, very weak and has, uh, um, and, and, and working class people in general have much less attachment to uh, the social democratic parties anywhere. So um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think it's, it, it is interesting that, uh, you know, there's, um, you know, the p- political, the philosopher and writer and filmmaker Astra Taylor has a book called uh, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Um, which is just a great, is a great idea. And, and a friend of mine recently said we were having a similar conversation to this technocracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of, I think a lot of elites across the political spectrum feel this way. Uh, they don't think that the people in charge of the, the state are doing a particularly good job of delivering for the needs of the people. But if dissatisfaction with that, with that failure you know, produces just an all-out war on technocrats in general, or sort of diminishes the so diminishes the legitimacy of the technocrats that they can't do even the minimal job of sort of dealing with the many crises we have right now, including things like climate change. Mm-hmm. That we'll miss it. <laughs> we'll miss technocracy when it's gone. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty febrile and unstable place to be in in general, because it's like. What we have is not good. If we didn't have it, we'd be worse off. 
and the dream of a kind of some kind of democratic organization of society which was which had competence built into it and more universalized competence uh feels very far mm-hmm. off as well absolutely and hence the kind of moral panic around uh, disinformation and, and trust. These are these are panics about technocratic legitimacy more than they are about the democratic legitimacy. Um, I, I think w- one of the things that you know, I mean, th- this is just sort of my reading. Feel free to disabuse me of this if if you if you don't agree. It seems to me that much of the liberal establishment's response to figures like this, especially when they're uh, odious in their kind of racial and gender politics is then a kind of technocratic solution. I mean, this is why I bring up the disinformation piece. It's like, can we just kind of orient our, rejig our information sphere so people like Teal, Yarvin just essentially disappear? So you have like two, it seems to me you have like two competing technocratic visions and nowhere in that is, like you said, popular will. It's it's just elites of either side of the technocracy, whatever kind of ideological valence you want to give it, competing about who to be the next set of political leaders. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I have profound ambivalence about the entire disinformation, misinformation industry, the sort of creation of a new kind of expert who is has some kind of special insight into the fabric of reality who can distinguish between something that's true and something that's not true, something that's true but dangerous and something that's true but okay. And, you know, just both as a philosophical matter but also in this kind of instrumental way because I don't think you can solve what is essentially a political problem with a technocratic solution. I think those solutions are attractive precisely because it reauthorizes the the necessity of <laughs> of the elite of the technocratic elite to be able to distinguish between right and wrong and true and not true. But I think that it's a solution to a problem which is very likely to exacerbate the the very the symptoms of that problem. I think you see it obviously with the right's reaction to the misinformation campaigns or the sort of anti-disinformation campaigns, you see the right saying, well, they're, they're trying to shut us up. They're trying to define what is a legitimate thing to say in political discourse. And it's hard to like really disagree. I mean, I can agree with the perspective that it would be better if people weren't saying those things, but as a democratic principle and as a sort of strategic proposition for solving the problem, I have my doubts. In general. So I'm going to wrap up here with just one final and maybe slightly unfair question um, to kind of uh, prognosticate to a certain extent. Do you think these uh, new ideological formations, namely the, the this new right or these new reactionaries, are they something that are go- is going to grow and we must contend with from the years to come or potentially flash in the pan, weird pathologies of the moment? I mean, to the extent that you can prognosticate, what what would you say? I don't think they're going away because the problems that they are providing solutions to are actual problems mystified by their ideological preoccupations, but uh, they are real problems. They are providing solutions to real problems uh, with with the government, the way it provides goods and and the way it interacts with the people it's that their solutions are the wrong ones you know we should come up with better ones the left i think especially the sort of 
uh, more social democratic left uh, does have better solutions. But, you know, this question of how to live in a sort of mediated internet digital society, that question is not going away. How do we reinvest sort of the state and the government with a sense of legitimacy? That question is not going away. And, and how is it that these massively wealthy liberal democracies are still so bad at providing for the basic needs of, of a lot of people in, their, in, in these countries? And so I think that the sort of technocratic solutions that are being provided by the new right are not going to go away unless we solve the problems. That was Sam Adler-Bell of Know Your Enemy. You can find that podcast and the articles we discussed on our show page. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. And that's also it for our series, Technocracy Now. I hope you enjoyed it. Darts and Letters is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. That's Canada's largest network of left-wing podcasts. We're also syndicated on the New Books Network. This podcast is a production of Cited Media. Our program is produced by Jay Coburn, Mark Apollonio, and Ren Bangert. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, And I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. This episode was part of a wider series that looks at the politics of technology and techno-utopian thinking. It received funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The scholarly leads on this project are Professors Tanner Murleys at Ontario Tech University and Imra Zeman at the University of Toronto in Scarborough. They both provided research and editorial guidance to this episode. We're also backed by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in next week.